If you were here last week, you'll know that we started a series called Heaven at Hand. And the big idea is that heaven and earth were never meant to be two separate places. And so in Mark's gospel, which is what we're going to be going through over the next seven weeks, we started last week, is the story of Jesus bringing heaven and earth back together again. So that is the big idea of the series. Last week in chapter one, I introduced the series and talked about heaven being at hand in the person of Jesus. So this idea that we can literally reach out and we can touch heaven and Jesus in himself is bringing heaven and earth together again. And then this week, I want to focus on one thing in chapter two, which is how Jesus brings heaven and earth back together again by redeeming rest in our lives by redeeming the day off that we have in the week or a couple of days off we have from work. So let me ask this question to start out. When was the last time you came home from work and you felt utterly satisfied with what you'd just been doing? You felt like you'd finished. You felt like you could put down tools and you could enjoy the evening, you could enjoy the weekend and you could leave work at work and you could genuinely rest at home. Many of you won't know this. In fact, no one will know this, but I once had an illustrious career as a potato farmer. So um, in my A-level years, my parents had moved out to a village out of the city, and we were surrounded by potato farms. It was in East Anglia, and there were lots of potato farms. And so in the summer before university, I figured I'm going to sign up and um, try and get a job as a potato farmer over the summer terms, make some money before I go away to university. And really, if I'm honest, the only reason I wanted to be a potato farmer was because I wanted to ride on a tractor. And I saw all these tractors riding around, a deep-seated childhood dream of mine and I thought if I could be a potato farmer there's a chance I'll get to ride on a tractor so I went to the local farm and I asked the farmer if he needed any help and he said yeah absolutely come tomorrow at 7 at 7 a.m and you can start work as a potato farmer so I went thinking this is going to be brilliant I'm going to get to sit on the tractor go out on the fields churn up all the potatoes job number one was standing on a stepladder which wobbled a lot next to a conveyor belt and my job was to watch hundreds if not thousands of potatoes go past on a conveyor and pick out all the moldy ones and it was an awful job thankless task in fact you put your hand out and often the potato had decomposed well beyond what it looked like and your fingers would go into the potato and you'd have rotten potato under your fingernails and you'd go home and you wouldn't feel satisfied whatsoever anyway I put the hours in as uh, the conveyor belt man and eventually got promoted to the guy down the line who was stitching the bag so potatoes would come off the conveyor belt fall into a bag and then the guy would get it together and put it through a stitch and I thought if I could just get to his role that would be brilliant because that would be so much better than mouldy potatoes eventually the farmer saw my skills with the mould and he thought this guy needs promoting so I got put on the bags and so I went down to the bags it probably took me about an hour to work out how to get them together to stitch them through after a while bags were whizzing past, whizzing past, all of them stitched perfectly, ready to go off to their homes, loads of lovely potatoes in the bags, a better job unless you obviously stitch your hand in the stitcher and then it was tragic, but you didn't have to deal with mouldy potatoes, did that for a while, excelled at the bag job in the potato factory. I then got promoted again and this time outside the field of potatoes, this is what happens if you can really work at things in your life and I was stuck on the grain in the warehouses and my job was to test the temperature of the grain. So I'd clamber about these huge warehouses, these big mounds of grain and of wheat, and I'd stick a rod in it and um, test the temperature of the grain, which I thought was a promotion until I got home. And I have never itched so much in my life. It was awful, horrific. Every day I went back in, had rashes all over my body. It's the worst job I've ever had. But the farmer finally recognized how good I was and the hours I put in. And one day I went into work as a potato farmer. He said, Ben, today you're with me on the tractor. And I had arrived. It was time 
for me to fulfill my calling. So he stuck me up on the tractor and we went out on the roads and it's brilliant. You know, normally you're stuck behind a tractor if you've ever lived in the country and you're annoyed because you're working out when to... I'm sitting on the back waving at all the cars. Hello. Nice. I'm sat on the tractor, beautiful big tractor. Went out on the fields. We're churning up potatoes. We're putting potatoes in the trailer. I would get home from work, uh, working on the fields in the tractor and I would take home a bag of potatoes and I'd put it on the table to my mum and say, Mum... My work here is done. Here's some potatoes. And we'd sit down and we'd eat the potatoes. I have never felt so satisfied with a day's work in my life. Now, that was 16 years ago. And I can't remember many times since then feeling so satisfied with work. In fact, as a student at university, you go through university, there's always deadlines coming up. There's always essays that need doing. There's always reading that needs doing for classes. There's always socializing that needs to happen through fear of missing out. You've got to go. Otherwise, you're going to miss out. And there's always more work to do. You constantly feel like you're never done with work, like you're not satisfied. After uni, I went to help plant a church in America. And it was totally foreign to me. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember going and the the place where we met was incredibly dirty. It was in a warehouse and it took me four hours to find a place to buy a mop. I didn't know what I was doing. Every day it felt like there was stuff I had to do. I'd get home from work. I wouldn't feel satisfied. Wouldn't feel like my job was done. I came home back to the UK to find a job. There's always more jobs to apply for. There's always more prep that you need to do in the interviews. You finally get a job. When you get the job, you're trying to prove yourself. You're trying to make things right. You're trying to progress in your career. It feels like you're never coming home completely satisfied with what's going on in your life. And then obviously I'm here at St. Peter's and this is a walk in the park. It feels like a holiday. The point is, you're never done, are you? I don't know if you can identify with that, but you get home and you do not feel satisfied. You don't feel like you've finished. For some of you, you don't have the luxury of ever being able to stop. You're holding down two jobs in the week just to be able to buy the basic needs. For some of us, we're forging a career in a new path. And so it feels like you're constantly striving to get to that next step, constantly striving to prove yourself in your career. For part-time mums or dads, this is horrible. Sometimes it feels like as a part-time mum or dad, either you're not doing a good job with the kids because you're trying to do well at work, or you're doing a job with the kids and it means you're not doing well at work and you're in this constant battle of feeling like you'll never finish, you're never satisfied with your job. For full-time mums or dads, it is the hardest job in the world bringing up children. You never feel like you're done. You're constantly worried whether you're doing enough, whether you're doing the right thing. Nobody ever encourages you. And so you finish work and it doesn't even finish because you're exhausted. You go to bed and you get up and there's work again. Even for those of us who are further on in our career, it feels like the buck stops with you, like you're carrying that burden, that weight of responsibility and you get home and you can't let it down. You can't leave it alone because you've constantly got that burden of whether I've done enough. Even for those of us who have finished work, who have retired, so often there's this restlessness at the heart of things that feels like our job isn't done. And all of this creates a weariness, a tiredness that it feels like it's hard to shake. It feels like you're never really finished. It feels like you're never really satisfied. And so our chapter today is about Jesus doing something about that problem. We so often make the mistake of thinking that in heaven there's going to be no work. That's the opposite as we read about it in Genesis. There is work in heaven. The difference is in the evening, Adam and Eve were able to walk in the cool of the evening with God and they were satisfied. Their work was done. They were able to rest. And so in this passage, we, we read about Jesus coming to bring heaven and earth back together again. And whereas on earth we experience this restlessness, this weariness of never being done, Jesus brings them back together and he enables us to be 
able to rest. So how does he do it? Well, let's read the passage. It's a little bit through Mark chapter two. It says this, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the cornfields and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some ears of corn. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? That's a day of rest. He said, he answered, have you ever read what David did when he was with his companions and they were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not the man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, and that was a title he used to refer to himself, particularly in, in Mark's gospel. The son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And I'm cheating a bit, we're going into chapter three. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So what do we have here? Well, this is an argument between Jesus and the religious rulers of the day about the Sabbath, the day of rest that was enshrined in the law so that people didn't just work straight the way through. So the law said that on the seventh day, they had to rest from the work that they had been doing. And it was based on what happened in the book of Genesis when the writer of Genesis writes about God resting on the seventh day. And this is obviously a brilliant law in principle. It's really good to rest from work. It's very important to rest from work. But the the problem was in the day of Jesus 2,000 years ago was that the religious rulers of the time had created tons of rules and regulations that stipulated what you had to do on the day of rest or probably better put, what you weren't allowed to do on the day of rest. And as a result, there was a constriction. There was a lack of freedom on the rest day. And all that was really happening was people were walking around terrified that they might break one of the activities that you weren't allowed to do. And two of the activities are what we've just read about in this passage, this story with Jesus, and it included reaping grain and healing. You see, the day of rest had become about rules and about manipulation and actually essentially about control for the religious leaders. Just to illustrate how ridiculous this got, if someone had false teeth, and apparently they did have false teeth back in the day, they weren't allowed to put them in on the Sabbath day because it would have constituted work. If someone had a false leg, they weren't allowed to put their false leg on and walk around because it would have constituted work and it was disallowed under those rules and regulations that the religious leaders had put up. And you can imagine the kind of feeling that would have created on the day of rest. It would have meant that people trying to rest on the Sabbath would have felt anything but rested because they would constantly be anxious about breaking one of these rules. And as you can imagine, as we read in this passage, this made Jesus furious, absolutely furious. The Sabbath is a Hebrew word and it means deep rest, deep 
peace. It's a near synonym with shalom, which is a, a state of full, fullness, a flourishing in every way. It's living life in all its fullness. So the Sabbath was about restoring. It was about replenishing. It was about repairing the downhearted, the exhausted, the broken. Healing a man's shriveled hand was exactly what should be happening on the Sabbath. Feasting is exactly what should be happening on the Sabbath. Yet, because of the religion and the rules and the regulations, they totally missed the forest for the trees and they'd undermine the purpose of the Sabbath in the first place. In a way, what they had done is they'd ripped heaven and part, uh, heaven and earth apart again. So the question for us as we read the Gospel of Mark is how is Jesus bringing those two things back together? Well, the key is in verse 27 and 28. It says this, Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Son of Man, remember, is the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself. So what's happening there? Well, we won't know this because we're not in the context, but Jesus is making an outrageous claim here to the religious leaders, and it made them incredibly angry. In fact, by the end, we read that they're trying to kill him. What's the outrageous claim? Well, by saying that, he's essentially putting himself up as equal with God. He's claiming to be divine. He could have just said, I have divine authority over the Sabbath to change it. He could have said, I am Lord over the Sabbath. But instead, he doesn't say that. He says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. What's he saying there? He's saying, I am the source of the deep rest, the wholeness that you really need. And it made them angry. So how is he able to say that? What is it about Jesus that makes or qualifies him to say that? Well, in order to understand that, we need to go back to the first time where we read about God resting, and that's in Genesis 1. So just got done with the creation, and then we read this, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, he rested from all the work of the creating that he had done. So we read here that God rests. What does that actually mean? Because it seems confusing to think of God who is supposed to be all-powerful, omnipotent, supposed to never, ever tire. So once he's done with speaking light into existence, he's flinging stars into space, he's separating earth and water. Once he's done with that, do we really want to believe that God was exhausted? He'd done himself in and therefore he needed to have a lie down. Surely that's not what God is like. There's got to be another reason why God rests in Genesis 1 and beginning of chapter 2. And the reason is way deeper than physical tiredness. And the reason is this. God was able to rest because he had finished. It was complete. What does he mean by finished? Well, it means that he was satisfied with it. At the end of chapter 1, verse 31, he declared it very Good. He was so satisfied with the work that he had done that he was able to down tools and leave it alone and truly rest. It was complete. It was whole. It was shalom. It was perfect. 
And it's only when we're truly satisfied with what we've done that we're able to walk away and rest. So what does this have to do with our own rest? Well, let me ask you this. How satisfied are you with your life at the moment? How happy are you with everything going on? This is the Christian claim. The Christian claim is that there's a weariness at the heart of things. There's a feeling of never truly being satisfied, never truly being finished with our work. It has physical effects. It has emotional effects. But deep down, the source, the root of it is actually spiritual. That there's a work beneath our work that we really need to rest from. A work to find meaning and purpose, to prove ourselves, to know that we're all right. And it manifests itself in so many different ways. In fact, it's fueled in loads of different ways. Comparison is a massive way that it's fueled. Fear is a way that it's fueled. These things in our life that cause anxiety and restlessness deep at the heart of things. But at its root is this dawning realization that no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we strive, no matter how hard we try and achieve again and again and again, we're never gonna be truly satisfied with who we are. Why? Because we know deep down we're not enough. It's a restlessness at the center of our being that can only really be solved with a spiritual solution. A solution I believe can only be found in Jesus. So how does Jesus deal with that restlessness at the core of things? Well, at the end of our reading, we read this, that the Pharisees then went out and they began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus, chapter three, verse six. We read for the first time that what Jesus is doing and saying is essentially gonna get him killed. In fact, as you read the Gospel of Mark and the other Gospels, this builds and it builds and it builds and it builds throughout the story of Jesus where people are finding any and which way they can arrest him and kill him. And of course, if you've read the Gospels, you know that this climaxes with Jesus' death on the cross. The most horrific way of Roman, uh, Roman kind of death penalty at the time was the crucifixion. You'd be flogged, you'd be beaten, you'd be tortured. He was made to carry this huge tree up this massive hill. He was crucified, his hands and his feet nailed to this tree in between two thieves and he lay there until he gave his last breath. I just want to read you John's account of what happened on the cross. It says this, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and they lifted it up to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So what does this have to do with rest. Well, this is the only, the second time we read in the Bible that God rested. First time, Genesis, we've just read. And then here, God had finished something. Knowing that everything had now been finished so that scripture would be fulfilled. It is finished. 
Here's what this means for us. All our attempts to find fulfillment in our own strength, all our attempts to prove ourselves, all our struggles with fear and with comparison and with obligation, all the ways that we hurt ourselves, we genuinely hurt ourselves, we genuinely hurt other people in this quest to try and be finished, to try and be good enough. All the things that we do that cause that restlessness at the core of who we are on the cross, Jesus takes it upon himself, even though he's done absolutely nothing wrong and once he's taken it upon himself he says it's finished it's done you're good you don't need to worry about it anymore I've got it and he destroys the power of it once and for all by sacrificing himself on the cross and it's when we come to Jesus as Candice has done this morning that we, we hear the words of our Father saying over us, you're my son, you're my daughter. With you I am well pleased. I love you. Jesus heard those words before he had done anything in his earthly ministry. Why? Because they're unconditional. They're not dependent on our work. We rest before we work. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's a beautiful metaphor that Jesus is using there that we wouldn't necessarily understand because he's a carpenter and most of us here probably aren't, but a yoke was something that a carpenter would make to bind two oxen together as they do their work. And what Jesus is saying is if you come to me, if you come to me, I'm going to come alongside you and my yoke is going to go over you. And yokes were were carved by carpenters to fit perfectly the the oxen um, that they were made for. And he says, if you come to me, I have the perfect yoke that's going to enable me to walk with you so that in all your weariness, in all your tiredness, in, in all your work, you'll be able to rely on me to be the strength that you need. And then you can truly be satisfied and you can truly rest in your work. Does this mean it's easy? It doesn't mean it's easy. You read this in the Gospels the whole time. When we choose to follow Jesus, it isn't signing ourselves up for happy, glorious life all the time of having a completely trouble-free life. That isn't the promise. But the promise is that Jesus will be in us and with us throughout all of the trials and tribulations that we go through as normal humans, but also as Christians because he is with us and his yoke fits us perfectly because we have this chasm in our soul that only he can fill. And when he fills it, he gives rest as deep as rest could possibly go. And so just to finish, I just want to tell a story. Um, Those years ago when I was helping plant a church, part of my job was to be a youth leader, part of my job was to be a worship leader and general kind of everything caretaker type. And um, in my youth group, there were five, um, five kids in the youth who were all siblings And so they made up half my youth group. It was only about 10 youth um, big. And the family were kind of core to our church at the time. And they were absolutely amazing family. And about six months into my time there, we found out that the dad of these five children um, had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And so over the year, um, he deteriorated um, incredibly fast. It was very fast-growing cancer to the point at which he could no longer come to church and so we'd send the kids and his wife to church and he'd have to stay 
at home. And um, after a while of this, he rang me up and he said, Ben, would you mind coming around to my house and just leading us as a family in worship a bit because I'm not able to get into church. And of course, I said, I'd love to do that. So I would go to their house and the whole family would gather around and we'd worship together. And I can honestly say I've never experienced the presence of God so strong than when we were worshiping with that family. And his relationship with God was incredible, despite all he was going through. And the way he modeled it to his children was amazing. A few months uh, beyond that, after we did that, probably for about six months, I got the call that he'd been taken into hospital. And then a few weeks after that, that he'd been taken into a place, essentially a hospice where he was being prepared to die. And the family rang me. Um, in what they thought was going to be their last week. And they said, can you come in and can you lead some worship for the family? And so I went to the hospice and I sat in the room with the whole family and we were just singing songs of adoration, exactly as we just done there, to Jesus as the family. He could barely sing, but he was trying. And the family are all in tears. And the presence of God came in that room in the most tangible sense possible. And the most amazing thing, happened in that moment he passed away as he was worshiping and he was easily easily the most satisfied person in that room in so many ways he hadn't finished yet like he hadn't seen his children grow up he hadn't done what he'd come to what he felt like he was called to do there were so many things ahead of him in his life and yet he was truly satisfied I've never seen someone so satisfied in my life why because he knew it had very little to do with physical rest from work. He knew that he could only find his rest in his relationship with Jesus. As he, as he adored Jesus, as he poured out his soul to Jesus, he found true rest. And so this is what Jesus is doing in our passage. He's bringing heaven and earth back together again. He's saying that physical tiredness that you feel, that emotional tiredness that you feel just from the relentlessness of life, you can take time off. That's absolutely fine. We need to take time off. But if you want to find true rest, if you want to find the kind of rest that satisfies, that deals with that work that's happening beneath our work, the only way we can find it is if we come to Jesus. And if we allow him to guide us and to carry our burdens and to give us rest. And so we're going to spend some time praying now. So would you like to stand?